Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Art History and Cultural Theory lecturer Dr Jonathan Cosselkate will examine how modern art continues to play a significant role in the life of the Church. The 20th century story of modern art and the Church is often thought to have begun with France and Germany when the destruction of two world wars provided ample opportunities for a renewal of church building and reconstruction in a modern idiom. The rebuilding program made necessary by the massive destruction of German cities in particular meant that church reconstruction became an important part of national recovery. Along with the construction of new modern buildings, like the Kaiser Wilhelm Memorial Church in Berlin, built alongside the ruins of its predecessor, the repair of bomb-damaged churches in France and Germany led, above all, to a renaissance in stained-glass design. As recently as 2007, Cologne Cathedral unveiled a new window, replacing one destroyed by Allied bombing, with a dramatic, though controversial, design by Gerhard Richter, utilising the coloured palette of medieval glass, but in an abstract grid of coloured squares, like some enormous pixelated image. Now, this development was also true of England, of course, but on a much more modest scale. Nevertheless, one of the great post-war reconstruction projects was that of Coventry Cathedral, a building which, for all its liturgical limitations, was conceived as a holistic vision combining modern architecture and modern art from the very beginning. It is almost unique in this respect. Basil Spence's expressed desire to unify art and architecture into a single visual and spatial concept The plan to incorporate a great tapestry, for example, is evident from the earliest of Spence's sketches, acting as a constant aesthetic marker throughout the process and evolution of the cathedral's design, and ultimately resulting in the central showpiece of the cathedral. The other well-known example of an ecclesiastical project that combined modern architecture with modern art in this country is, of course, Liverpool's Catholic Cathedral. Affectionately, or perhaps disparagingly, I'm really not sure, called Paddy's Wigwam, in remembrance of the largely Irish labour that built it. This cathedral was conceived in the new liturgical style that emerged after Vatican II, the Church Council had attempted to modernise the Catholic Church in the mid-1960s to bring it into alignment with modern culture. Hence its circular form with a central altar and its impressive deployment of abstract imagery, notably John Piper's dramatic corona of stained glass that crowns the building. Now, along with Graham Sutherland's tapestry, John Piper was another of the artists employed to such dramatic effect at Coventry. His baptistry window must be one of the great pieces of church art in this country. 
described by one writer as a lesson in the effective expression of the abstract symbolism of color. It was in the 1940s, however, that the birth of modern art for the church really began in this country, in a small parish church in Northampton, under the guiding eye of one of the most significant patrons of modern art and music for the church, a man called Walter Hussey. Hussey managed to persuade Henry Moore and later Graham Sutherland to produce works for this small parochial church. Perhaps even more significantly, he managed to convince his parishioners to accept them, many of whom, though initially voicing their antipathy to the works, ended up up, um, defending them in no uncertain terms against the hostile criticism that came from the press and from the wider church. Hussey went on to further develop his artistic patronage at Chichester Cathedral, where again pieces by Piper, Sutherland, Chagall and others were invited into the church. In this case, an 11th century rather than Victorian building. Now, this is simply by way of introduction, really, setting the scene. Actually, my interest is not so much this period of modern art's inception into the church, but more recent decades, and not modern, but contemporary art as such. Though there are earlier exceptions, the church's engagement with contemporary art can probably be dated to the beginning of the 1990s, when a number of significant commissions coincided with a general sea change in attitudes towards contemporary art and in the visibility of contemporary art. Now, this was apparent in the literature on the subject. Among writers interested in religion and art or theology and art today, there is a common perception that little was being written on church-based art prior to the 1990s, perhaps because there was a paucity of actual commissions and projects. By the end of that decade, that climate had entirely changed. At the beginning of the 1990s, the theologian George Patterson, for example, who's actually quite a significant figure, really, in thinking about contemporary art in the church, He had observed that scholarship had produced very little in the way of a coherent modern dialogue between art and religion, a lack which had prompted the writing of his Art, Modernity and Faith in 1991. By the time of its second edition, at the end of the 1990s, Patterson had noted a distinct change. And he says this, in the last decade, there has been an enormous growth of interest in art and religion an interest reflected both in the installation of new works in churches and in an expanding theological and critical literature. This was in 1988, 1998. Now, another 10 years down the road, this trend has continued to grow apace, not only in the literature on art, but in the increasing number and variety of projects. The Anglican Church, in particular, is awash with proposals attempting to energise the aesthetic possibilities of sacred buildings or anxious to rephrase the language of religious principles 
in modern artistic terms. What is of particular interest to me is that rather than promoting a, shall we say, religious art reflecting Christian ideology, recent practice has very often encouraged interventions that critique the values of the spaces that host them and the role of art within them. New forms and new media have been introduced, radically departing formally and conceptually from more conventional imagery. The decade of the 1990s began with a major exhibition in Lincoln Cathedral called The Journey. This was one of the first occasions in which various works of art were arranged throughout a cathedral, utilising its various spaces to generate a dynamic dialogue between the works and their context. This is something actually that has since become a very commonplace practice. Gloucester, for instance, I guess, is not so far from here. Gloucester does a, a great deal of work like this. But it was two commissions in the mid-1990s that became benchmarks for the way that art could be employed in the church. Many of you are no doubt familiar with Anthony Gormley's sculpted figure in the crypt of Winchester Cathedral. Originally intended as a temporary visitor to the crypt, it became a permanent element of the cathedral when it was felt to be such a good fit for the space. Here was an artwork that, though unfamiliar in its unconventionality at first, soon became a valued element of the cathedral. Art could be set in a contemporary idiom, yet find a place within an ancient and sacred environment. Sound 2, as it is called, as it is called, is a contemplative piece, very much, I think, in keeping with the stillness and uh, solitude of the space. But it's also dramatically resonant with the peculiarities of the crypt as a, as a space that periodically floods. The figure actually holds uh, like a cup of water in its hands. Or rather, its cupped hands, I should say, hold, hold the water. It was at Durham Cathedral, however, that the parameters for church-based art really began to be challenged when in 1996 Bill Viola produced a specially commissioned video work called The Messenger for the Cathedral. The Messenger is very simple in its narrative, and I'll just describe what happens for those who don't know it. On a large dark screen, a small, luminous, abstract form shimmers and undulates against a blue-black void. As it grows larger, it begins to coalesce into a definable human shape, illuminated and rising towards us from beneath the surface of a body of water. It is a man, naked, on his back, rising very slowly. Finally, he breaks the surface, opens his eyes and breathes deeply. After a few moments, he inhales, shuts his eyes, and sinks back down into the depths of the shadowy waters, becoming once more a shimmering, fragmented point of light as he sinks deeper and deeper. Now, as in much of Viola's earth, 
the primal and elemental form the raw material of his world. Water, breath, deprivation, nakedness, birth and death, these are all ubiquitous themes. They have, he feels, a universal spiritual currency, able to articulate what one critic described as Viola's genuinely numinous vision. It crosses faith boundaries and transcends language barriers. Water, above all, is a fundamental symbol for Viola, a symbol of death and dissolution, but also birth and rebirth. From the moment of its inception, however, the overriding rhetoric that dominated discussion was not around its spiritual or religious implications, but rather around concerns over the question of male nudity and the controversy that ensued around questions of obscenity and moral outrage. Well, as I'm sure we're all familiar, familiar with, hyperbole around issues of nakedness have, of course, dogged art for the church and led to numerous acts of censorship or fig leaf additions to especially troublesome works. As the art critic Valdemar Janacek rather mischievously pointed out at the time, there might be 150 nudes on the roof of the Sistine Chapel, but that's papism for you. In C of E art, men are not allowed out without their togas. Now, Canon Bill Hall, the cleric responsible for commissioning this work, could see no difficulties with its depiction of bare humanity. In his view, the figure of the messenger is unequivocally, matter-of-factly naked, neither obscene nor erotic. If gender-specific, it speaks of a generic condition, a stripping away of all the props, encumbrances and trappings of the material world. On the advice of the police, however, he was reluctantly persuaded to erect screens around the Great West Door where the video was being projected, inevitably changing the conception and dynamic of the work as a film to be observed throughout the nave. This unfortunate response to what was effectively a representation of life in all its humanity, simplicity and vulnerability was at least preferable to the results of a similar situation over concerns around male nudity that played out at the Lincoln Cathedral exhibition mentioned earlier. In that prior controversy, the work in question, Leonard McCombs' portrait of young man standing, was removed altogether. Actually, one of the people who was very much in defence of this work at the time was um, Sister Wendy Beckett. What is so very interesting regarding the messenger is the degree to which it has assumed a place of seminal importance to debates around contemporary art and the church. These days, the question of nudity, so prominent to the arguments around the work's suitability for a church in the 1990s, is simply not an issue. Since that time, the messenger has reappeared in 
in St. Paul's Cathedral, unscreened and uncontroversial. While in 2010, McCombe's Young Man Standing was shown as part of a major exhibition of works in Gloucester Cathedral, along with actually several other nude figures, and again without comment, without any problem. Today the messenger is discussed above all for shifting the parameters of what was deemed possible for contemporary forms of art in religious contexts, in which film, sound, movement, performance, participation have all become legitimate forms of installation. But it also affected ideas about the content of art for church contexts and its relation to the sacred. It is clear from Viola's writings and interviews that he believes art, in his words, well, not in his words, in David Morgan's words, that art is able to repristinate a secular culture, or at least certain moments of it, by reclaiming an aspect of the sacred that has been marginalized by modern life. In contrast to the theory of secularization, which regards religion and the sacred as outmoded vestiges of pre-modern culture, Viola affirms the idea that the sacred is an element in the structure of consciousness and not a stage in the history of consciousness. Now, this notion of the sacred as an element of the human condition rather than simply the province of a religious frame of mind, has come to play a highly significant role in the story of contemporary art for the church. Thus, the significance of the messenger is twofold. And I dwell on it because it's considered to be such a sort of benchmark work. Firstly, there's the theological challenge it presented to ways of visualizing the divine or the sacred art's potential to dramatically and powerfully respond to the theological and symbolic dynamics of church contexts. And then secondly, there's the public debate it initiated, which, if a distraction from the theological challenge, nonetheless raised questions about the nature of art, the nature of the sacred, and their place in modern society. In both respects, the contemporary art shown in churches and cathedrals over the past two decades has negotiated these two aspects of its theological and liturgical relevance and its socio-cultural relevance. Well, whatever the achievements of The Messenger and other subsequent works, certain unresolved problems continue to, place, uh, continue to trouble the place of contemporary art in sacred contexts. One of its persistent difficulties is the perception that any art that is not tied to a religious tradition of art making or fails to adhere to conventional ecclesiastical imagery can only be a disruptive, even oppositional presence in the church. Crucial to current debates is the anxiety that still governs the minds of many worshippers and visitors regarding the incongruity of modern art within churches, with its perceived predilection for transgression and sacrilege, 
As one pastor curator has observed, art's tendency to act as a provocateur makes it an unruly and divisive congregation to be included in the life of the church. Indeed, as the art critic Eleanor Hartney notes, the perception persists that contemporary art is antithetical to religion, supposing art and religion to be enemies, despite what she believes to be the erroneous basis of this assumption in reality. Her work specifically challenges Catholic denunciations of artists like André Serrano, whose purportedly sacrilegious works are, she points out, actually rooted in a Catholic corporeal sensibility. Her sense that artists like Serrano need to be continually defended against religious opposition is not without some justification. As recently as 2011, Serrano's infamous Piss Christ was the victim of vandalism wrought by a Catholic reactionary group protesting its display in a secular art museum. In the face of such hostility, a more tempered view, perhaps, is that the two worlds of church and art are perhaps mutually wary, with little understanding or appreciation for the other. It is certainly the case that, despite the enormous increase in the number of art projects in and for the churches in the past two decades, contemporary art is still accorded a relatively marginal place within the life of the church. Now, part of that distancing, of course, is the difficulty of knowing how to include it. Unlike many early commissions of modern art for the church, which generally resulted in, shall we say, religious art reflecting Christian ideology, albeit in a modern visual language, recent practice is frequently formulated to an attempt to rethink the conventional values of and roles for art in an ecclesiastical space. This is not to deny that a more traditional or conventional role for ecclesiastical or sacred or Christian or liturgical art is also apparent, but again increasingly phrased in the aesthetic language of the contemporary world. This difficulty for the accommodation of art actually works both ways. Though capable of offering an unparalleled aesthetic environment for a work of art, Churches and cathedrals also confront art with a space whose religious history suffuses every nook and cranny, every chapel and transept. When art enters a cathedral or a church, it encounters a canvas already replete with a visual heritage that artist and artwork cannot avoid and cannot afford to ignore. Apart from these hermeneutical challenges inherent to such contexts, art also finds itself competing with visible or audible distractions far greater than anything it might encounter in a gallery. For this and other reasons, we must ask ourselves whether there is any justification to one writer's assertion that art and religion, as he says, have never succeeded in cohabiting durably under the same roof. 
And this particular critic writes as the translator as a major text on Matisse's chapel at Vons, often considered one of the great achievements in the history of modern art for the church. So despite his investment in the project, he implies that its syncretism of art and religion has not been entirely successful and perhaps never could be. Now, because of the various potential difficulties associated with bringing contemporary art into the church, we might expect it to be subject to certain restrictions and defined criteria. To this end, several of Britain's cathedral chapters have, in fact, introduced arts policies in recent years in order to ratify what has up, up until now been a rather piecemeal affair. However, although arts policies are designed to facilitate the use of art, they can also impede it. Typical of the kind of limitations placed upon artists is the following set of criteria recently demanded by a senior clergyman and advocate for art in churches, criteria which is reflected in many of these policies. He outlined three essential qualities that he felt had to be taken into account, or to use his term, negotiated, in any commission for the church. Aesthetic quality, clear Christian symbolism, and accessibility. Although we can see why he would describe these three as essential, it is not insignificant that he chose to speak of negotiating, since the viability of all three is debatable. How so, you might ask? The first condition may be subsumed into subjective criteria of taste. However much voices within the arts, media or church call for certain objective standards to be upheld. If we are to utilise this criterion, we would need to understand precisely what is meant by aesthetic quality. Although there may be an argument in favour of this condition, it is no easy matter to decide its parameters or its scope especially where the use of new media are concerned. It may be that certain assumptions inform, or rather preform, such aesthetic expectations. The second condition barely seems to apply at all, based on many of the successful precedents of ecclesiastical art of the past two decades. Christian symbolism is often absent and when it is present, is often far from clear. This lack of clarity is compounded by a frequently lamented lack of visual and symbolic literacy among the lay public. Actually, where a common complaint concerning the first condition is that it is compromised by a lack of visual sensitivity or education on the part of the clergy. Of course, a perceived decline in the power and communicability of traditional Christian symbolism, along with the appropriation and willful distortion of religious imagery and much contemporary art outside the church, this does not necessarily devalue the importance of such symbolism, but it does cause us to ponder the efficacy of such a condition. Does clear Christian symbolism preclude all forms of abstraction, for example? Does it rule out ambient or conceptual works? 
are works based upon the symbols of other religions automatically disqualified? Would it discount works that might be considered difficult or abstruse? Several significant pieces of church-based art would be ineligible on these grounds. We could go on, but let's move on to the third condition of accessibility, which is an extension of the second. What is required of a work of art to make it accessible? And to whom must it be accessible? Does this imply easy, perhaps universal access to a work? Does it infer that at some level everyone should be able to appreciate it? Isn't there a sense in which at times accessibility takes second place to mystery, uncertainty or complexity? A work of art may be initially accessible on one level but guarded on another, requiring effort, patience or determination on the part of the viewer. Now, From a certain Christian standpoint, one might justifiably lay down the law on these three conditions and demand that it is only good and right that a work of art in an ecclesiastical setting fulfill these requirements. But one would be going against the tradition of modern art in the church that has sought to extend the range of artistic form and content beyond such narrow limitations. If we take the last four winning entries of the Art and Christianity Inquiry Award for Art in a Religious Context, we will see that these criteria, although undoubtedly widely supported, hardly apply at all. And as you see there, this is an award not just for significant works of art, but works that are considered um, significant specifically within their ecclesiastical setting. 2011's winners, Two Windows by James Huguenin and Anne Vibeka Mu for the Parish Church of St. John's in Healy, certainly work with familiar, a familiar ecclesiastical aesthetic, but in unfamiliar ways. The commemorative purpose for which they were commissioned is also manifestly clear, each window accompanied by a plaque bearing the name of the church warden's parents for whom they were commissioned. In each case, however, no clear Christian symbolism is evident, nor do they necessarily invite accessibility. One is motivated by diagrammatic abstraction, the other informed by minimalism. One follows a programmatic grid, the other is ethereal and vaporous. Each is designed to invite contemplation, yet each works with unconventional form and ambiguous meaning. Similarly, neither of the previous two winning pieces offer a straightforward aesthetic, clear symbolism, nor certain accessibility. Tracy Emin's permanent neon work called For You can be found in Liverpool's Anglican Cathedral. As a textual statement, we might think we know to whom the words I felt you and I knew you loved me, we might think we know to whom they are directed. But this cannot be taken for granted. 
And although as a work of light, it clearly resonates with the aesthetic quality of the stained glass directly above it. What about the fact that it's delivered in an aesthetic form whose nearest equivalent is the electric signage found in any public institution today? There are many for whom the use of neon represents tawdry populism, ill-suited to what might otherwise be read as a statement of devotion. In point of fact, this work is surprisingly nuanced. Unlike the neon texts of Bruce Nauman or Martin Creed, the thicks and thins of her pink neon script replicate the personality of the written hand, adding a candid note of intimacy to a very public setting. Set beneath the enormity of Carl Edwards' colourful and multi-fragmented window, Emin's text posits a still and meditative focal point, offering the viewer an effective, tender statement, mawkish perhaps, but sincere, a human dimension within the cavernous proportions of the nave. Rosefin Kelsey's Angel, temporarily sited atop St. Paul's Church in Bow in London, is saturated with the language of popular culture, using the economical language of mobile phone texting to spell out in colourful shimmer discs the most visually economic rendition of an angel. Angel was incredibly popular during its brief tenure at St. Paul's, but her use of the emoticon seemed designed to appeal to a specific audience able to recognise the unorthodox language it applied. Alison Watts' painting Still in Old St. Paul's Church, Edinburgh, depicts folds of white fabric, a cross negatively formed by the gap between the four canvases. It seems to indicate a closer correlation with the aforementioned conditions, yet retains sufficient mystery in its silent presence within the church to confound all but the most indirect and elusive of interpretations. Perhaps it is Stephen Cox's St. Anselm's Altar in Canterbury Cathedral, the joint winner with Angel, which represents the most conventional tradition for ecclesiastical art. Aesthetically pleasing and fitting to its liturgical purpose, if its many symbolic nuances are not obvious, its liturgical role certainly is. A concrete effect of the issues at stake here extend beyond the degree to which a work of art satisfies certain specified criteria to the consequences it has for the choice of artists selected to produce work for the church. Whatever the religious convictions of the artists discussed above, the characteristic scenario of ecclesiastical installations nowadays is that artists are routinely um, accepted or selected who openly profess no form of Christian belief. This is deemed no bar to their ability to produce work appropriate to a sacred environment. Piety, it is felt, is no replacement for artistic vision. Although critics of this attitude sometimes complain that artistic vision is no replacement for religious imagination, 
Whichever way one leans, rightly or wrongly, the balance has of late been, been weighted far more against those who would insist on the confessional artist. In fact, from the earliest examples of modern art for the church onwards, artists are very frequently being commissioned who make no bones about the fact that they are themselves non-believers. This has not prevented them from producing effective, if sometimes controversial, works that have been generally accepted and supported by congregations. In 2012, David Mack, a self-confessed atheist, exhibited, exhibited one of his signature wire coat hanger sculptures of the crucifixion in London's Southwark Cathedral during, um, during Lent. Now, whatever you might think of this as a piece of devotional art, the argument has been made that such works challenge the assumption that only artists of faith can produce religious art. Indeed, it is sometimes said that it can be the artist without faith who does the better job, unencumbered by expectations of conforming to the standard interpretations of either the church or the history of art. However deeply held this view may be, based on earlier exemplars like Moore or Sutherland, it's not difficult to raise objections to its premises. Personally, I suspect that Mack's religious images are unlikely to have the kind of long-term religious significance of a Henry Moore or a John Piper or a Graham Sutherland. They rely upon too great an attachment to our contemporary times and contemporary culture. A better example might be Guy Reed, another openly non-Christian artist who created a permanent sculpture for St. Matthew's in Westminster. Reed's carved limewood statue is a small but striking work, about 18 inches in height, and stands on a tall square column, behind which rises a high flat stone back. Again, it's a controversial work for several reasons, but primarily for an issue we have already encountered. Reed's Madonna is entirely naked, as a result of which it was subject to some extraordinarily harsh critical judgments in certain elements of the Catholic press. For its critics, Reed's Madonna was an affront to both aesthetic and liturgical values. Castigated in the Catholic Herald as disgusting and offensive, the author of one defamatory article thought it so profane as to be almost blasphemous. Yet when I went to see the work for myself, I was deeply impressed by its sensitivity, both to the space and its devotional purpose, as well as by its skillful craftsmanship. According to Father Philip Chester, the current incumbent of St. Matthew's, following a period of acclimatization to its unconventional nature, Reed's Madonna and Child has been warmly accommodated by the local congregation. For Chester and his congregation, the artist's lack of personal belief did not preclude his ability to produce a work capable of great religious sensitivity, sacramental efficacy, and theological insight. Contrary to those, then, who continue to bemoan the strained relationship of art and the church, 
and complain that ours is a culture in which, in which aesthetic veneration has replaced religious devotion. Many might justifiably take the view that a thriving relationship of art and the church is clearly discernible, and a place for contemporary art within the church now more or less assured. Ironically, I would argue that one of the challenges facing the church today is, if anything, to resist the temptation to take every opportunity to fill our cathedrals and churches with art. We should take heed of those who advise a kind of cautious optimism regarding the current climate for ecclesiastically cited art, lest our churches and cathedrals become simply another cultural venue for the display of exhibitions, rather than using art to enhance the life of the church. This is particularly tempting for the Church of England, which has had to confront the legacy of an iconoclastic tradition that still scars its facades. In a comparable fashion to the war damage that has initiated so many ecclesiastical projects in France and Germany, empty niches and defaced statues all bear the imprint of an iconoclastic past that is our aesthetic present, the template within which we operate. Although I believe the church should not be unduly hasty in refilling these spaces, since for every effective work of art, experience has shown that works often detract rather than add to the quality of the space. Let me just finish by highlighting two projects that have successfully reinstated imagery where now vanished imagery once stood. On the front facade of Norwich Cathedral, David Holgate's Mother Julian and St. Benedict has sensitively and evocatively filled niches that have remained empty for some 500 years. And he has made use of two prominent local figures. Care has been taken to provide an artistic solution appropriate to a modern aesthetic sensibility. The second example is a triad of paintings by Ian McKillop, inserted into a reredos vandalised by Cromwell's troops during the English Civil War. The paintings managed to blend almost seamlessly into their background and at the same time reflect the mutilated aesthetic quality of the reredos in their expressionistic style. Again, these are at Gloucester. So, just to finish... In the past, a progressive role for art within the church relied very much upon the patronage and indeed belligerent determination of particular individuals like Walter Hussey. This in an age when modern art did not enjoy the kind of popular appreciation it has today, but rather was subject to intense scepticism and considerable hostility. Each successful installation was seen as an important achievement, therefore, and another step along the path to a more radical, a more prominent and enlightened role for art within the life of the modern church. Today's ecclesiastical arts programme exists within a very different cultural climate, one that reflects a massive cultural shift 
in the visibility and acceptability of contemporary art within the wider culture. If the 1990s was a period of testing the waters, of experiment, of uncertainty and risk-taking, building on the legacy of Coventry, St. Matthews and Chichester, the 2000s was a period of marked expansion and perhaps consolidation as cathedrals increasingly became viable sites for contemporary art. My suspicion is that we have arrived at a delicate juncture in the development of the church's relationship with contemporary art. Indeed, it may be that we have in fact entered a new phase for church-based contemporary art, in which case we should be asking what language, what forms, what direction will it take? Thank you.